How's that for an all-star panel? Banfield starts now. What a busy Thursday, and you know what I call Thursday, Friday Eve. You can always tell from my messy hair how busy it is. It's pretty messy. Uh, so Scott Peterson kind of like took every headline in the early 2000s. And if you were living and breathing at that time, you remember the dynamite smile of Lacey Peterson and how it was so hard to understand how anybody could do something to Lacey like it was accused Scott did to her and then convicted and then sentenced to life, no parole. Actually, death, commuted to life, no parole. Lacey was right about to have a baby and disappeared Christmas Eve. And all the ugly evidence that really looked hinky pointed to Scott, and he didn't behave well either. But now something is happening that just doesn't seem to fit the narrative all these years. The Innocence Project says, yes, we'll get involved in his case. Can I just say, if the Innocence Project accepts your case, there's got to be some merit somewhere, because they don't typically accept most cases. The majority of people who say, please help me, I've been convicted wrongly, I'm sitting in jail, they don't get a hearing. They don't get the help of the Innocence Project. But Scott Peterson is getting that help. We're going to go over why. <laughs> like, What is it that the Innocence Project is seeing two decades later that merits them getting involved? And does he have a shot? Does he have a shot at getting a new trial and actually having that Verdict actually upended and maybe returned in a different way. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in a second. Then also, something happened today to Richard Allen. If you recognize the name, it's because he's associated with the Delphi murders. He was, he was arrested, charged, and he's been sitting in a jail cell, atrophying, like literally getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier, waiting to find out why they picked him after seven years since... Those two little girls, well, they were young preteen girls, um, since their deaths. Why did they pick him? And now going on two years later, when's he going to get tried and do they have the goods? Abigail Williams and Libby German deserve justice. But they also deserve that there's no injustice, as does Richard Allen. Today, he went to the Supreme Court in Indiana and said, I want my lawyers back. I want my lawyers back that the judge in my case tossed out. We'll get to the reasons why. And then he got good news. And then right after he got the good news, he got really, really bad news. Like, he's in double the trouble that he was before. I'll explain it all in a minute. And then, um, (laughs) I don't even know how to put this. Do you put your hands in your pockets? It's It's not a weird thing to have your hands in your pockets, right? We all do it. It's the reason, like, hoodies have pockets and and jackets have pockets and pants have pockets. We all put our hands in our pockets. What we do not do, I'm just going on a limb here, pardon the pun, we don't put other people's hands in our pockets. Well, maybe, you, you know, you do a little. But you don't put other people's severed hands in your pockets. And God forbid the police should catch you with someone's severed hand in your pocket. People, this has happened. And I'm going to have to take you out to snowy Colorado to explain all of the bizarro details that leads up to the police arresting a man 
with a woman's hand in his left breast pocket. It's like a Netflix series. I think it might be. All right, so let's start here. Because excuse me, did 20 years just flash by and I didn't notice? 20 whole years? Because that is how long it has been since the name Scott Peterson dominated the conversation in every corner of the country and every headline. And the internet wasn't even super hot and fiery, but he broke the internet. If you did not experience that time yourself, 2003 and 2004, you need to trust me when I tell you that the arrest and the trial and the conviction of Scott Peterson was the top story every day. And everybody hung on every single detail. And it just became a top story again today. Breaking news. Let me give you a short recap. Christmas Eve, 2002. Scott's 32 years old. His wife, Lacey, is 27, and she is eight months pregnant. They live in Modesto, California. Scott goes fishing that evening. I know, weird, right? There's only two of you and you're doing that on Christmas Eve? But okay. Trouble is he comes home to report that his very pregnant wife, Lacey, is missing. And a sprawling investigation ensues. And over the weeks, it comes out that Scott Peterson very inconveniently had been having an affair. And the other woman goes public. And things start to look really bad for Scott Peterson. Phone calls between Scott Peterson and the girlfriend, Amber Fry. Well, those very uncomfortably surface at his murder trial. And I'm going to skip ahead here. But analysts say the tapes of those phone calls with the girlfriend were really what put Scott Peterson away. Here is one of those calls from six days after his pregnant wife, Lacey, went missing. Scott is talking about what a romantic person he is with his girlfriend. And he is planning his new life. Take a listen. 95% means that it's, uh, I guess, uh, romantic. Uh, and I uh, just you know, see these wonderful possibilities. Unfortunately, you know, 5% is, you know, out of questions. About what? Uh, about how we fit together. Parenting with. I do not have the time tonight to play all of those sordid tapes, cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. But, you know, to recap, here's a guy whose pregnant wife is missing less than a week, and he's making co-parenting plans with his girlfriend. Not good. About four months later... Also not good, Lacey, uh, who has vanished, unvanishes. Her body and her unborn baby wash up separately in the San Francisco Bay. At this point, Lacey is decapitated. Her arms and legs are missing, presumably from ropes and anchors that may have weighted her body down and then eventually released during decomposition. Uh, That husband of her, Scott, is arrested. He's tried. He's convicted. He is sent to death row. And in later years and multiple appeals, he manages to get his death sentence reduced to life without parole due to how that jury was selected. But he does remain locked up. And that brings me to present day, January 2024, and a group called the Los Angeles Innocent Project. Innocence Project. It is a nonprofit dedicated to freeing the wrongly convicted, and they are very judicious with how they choose their cases. They want the justice system to take a whole new look now at Scott Peterson's case. 
And the group has filed some very hefty motions. Just today, California Superior Court claiming the key bits of evidence are crying out for state-of-the-art DNA testing. They also say that other evidence should have been shared with Peterson during the trial that first time round, and it wasn't. The group released a statement today, uh, and you don't have to pour a drink for this one because it is real short. It says this, the Los Angeles Innocent Project represents Scott Peterson and is investigating his claim of actual innocence. We have no further comment at this time, end quote. That phrase, though, actual innocence, it means a lot. It is significant because you don't often see it in court papers, mostly because defendants pin all their hopes on reasonable doubt. Not actual innocence, but just, you know, maybe, maybe there's something off there. So what do you think these new lawyers see in his case? What do you think they see could actually result here? Let's start off with the issue of DNA, because that's basically everything for the Innocence Project. The new filings ask for DNA testing on a range of materials that allegedly were pretty important at the time of Scott Peterson's conviction, and they include this. Cloth from mattress. A mattress that was found in a van that caught fire at the Modesto airport on, yup, Christmas Day. It's interesting. And then cloth from the van fuel tank. The van fire was arson. And then there's the target bag from near where the site, the bodies washed up at. That's interesting. A target bag near the bodies. Okay. Duct tape from the target bag and black tarp, also near the site where the bodies washed up. The motion says, and I will quote, the results of the requested DNA testing would raise, raise a reasonable probability that in light of all the evidence, Mr. Peterson's verdict or sentence would have been more favorable if they'd been available at the time of the conviction. This is where I call Ted Rollins, because Ted and I have worked together for decades, He looks about 20 years younger than me, but he's not. Um, But Ted, you're perfect because, you know, when you go to the Scott Scott Peterson case, even reporters who were there at the time, like me, have blind spots. We've forgotten things. It's just, it's two plus decades. And you, on the other hand, have been on it since day one and nothing escapes you. So were you surprised when you heard this headline today that the Innocence Project sees merit here, enough merit to say, we're going to take this case on, one of the very few that we ever take on. Yeah, we're going to go with Scott Peterson. Yeah, of course, uh, because of what you've laid out. There is something there. They have taken a, an initial look at it, obviously, and they get people asking them to look at their cases all the time because they are so good. And here we are. They've looked at it. And they said, we're in. We're all in. They're asking for very specific items. They want to test DNA, as you mentioned, uh, this van that we all remember. uh, They found the van. It was discounted. All right, well, now it's back. And it's back for a reason. And they have sort of said in in this filing, we have new evidence. Well, what's the new evidence? Because what they're asking to test is old evidence. That's the big question tonight. So let me get this straight. There's a van fire at the airport. It is suspiciously close to when Lacey goes missing. It's Christmas Day, which is the day after. And there's a suspicious arson fire at that van. Is the supposition here, I'm just going to leap, that maybe the people who grabbed Lacey, in their opinion, uh, put her in that van and then 
torched the van so there'd be no evidence left of Lacey. And it has nothing to do with Scott Peterson. Is that, am I, am I following? Yeah, the burglary across the street, the van in the neighborhood, it's that van they're going to, they're obviously zeroing in on, and they want to test the duct tape of um, the all, all the items also that washed up with the bodies on that Target bag. It's not, it's not Target the store, it's a shipping company called Target. But, um, okay. you know, they've got something else, actually. They do. And you know what I'm thinking it is? If you remember... During the evidentiary hearing in August of 2022, it got a lot of play. You know, Scott Peterson was back in the news. They brought in strawberry shortcake. He lost that hearing. But Janie Peterson received a message that someone told her that there was a man at a party or something, and he was bragging or talking about being in this situation, being one of the robbers. And he said that basically his friends killed Lacey. This person contacts Janie. She tells Pat Harris, the lawyer, they go up and they actually track down three people that said, yes, this man who was referred to as DM in an appeal uh, that, that Scott himself uh, filed. They couldn't find this DM character, but two of the people who witnessed it, uh, listened to this conversation, wrote down what they remembered, signed it. What if they found DM, this DM, and this person is leading them to go test this, this, and this, because this is my story and this is what happened. I, that's what I've been racking my brain all day about this. And, and I'm, I, th- there's something here, Ashley, that, that isn't apparent in that, in those filings, but I'm leaning towards a, a, some sort of eyewitness account. Somebody, if indeed someone else so, did this, well, 20 years, hey, it might come, eventually come out. I have like 10 seconds left, but the the most important question here is if you follow the case, there's so much damning evidence against him. I mean, it is just one big, bad, ugly after the other. And then all of a sudden, little stories that you think, oh, that's odd. But when you do the the, the justice scales, Ted, and I'm going to ask you with the 20 plus years of evidence that's in your head on this case, when you do those justice scales, is all this new dangling stuff really going to make a difference with the whole heap that weighted him down and sent him to prison? Honestly, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine it unless there's a bombshell here that we don't know about. You're right. If you went to the trial, those jurors, they came to a conclusion that you could absolutely reasonably come to. And he's lost every appeal for the most part coming up there besides being uh, taken off death row. Um, So, no, I, I don't think at the end of the day he's walking out of prison. Ted Rollins, Court TV, you do such great work, by the way. Um, and I, I encourage anyone, if you see a documentary and Ted Rollins is in it, watch the doc because you will learn so much more than you thought you knew. And that's the case. And I've been learning literally from you about Lacey Peterson for, for two decades. Thank you for being on the program. Please come back. My pleasure, Ashley. Wow, just love Ted. Okay, and there's someone else I like a lot, and that is Gloria Allred because she is really connected to this case. She's a nice person as well. She represented Peterson's girlfriend, Amber Fry, during that trial back in 2004. She also represents Ann Bird, who is Scott Peterson's sister, who believes that Scott is guilty. Gloria, thank you. Look at us. Twice in, in one week we get together. So big question. You and I are very familiar with, with Barry Sheck. We're very familiar with, with the movement that he started across this country of Innocence Projects in, in, in every state. And now we have the Los Angeles-based Innocent Project deciding it's going to take on 
the case of Scott Peterson. And you and I both know well they do not take cases easily. What does this make you think about when it comes to the ultimate resolution of Scott Peterson's uh, guilt or innocence? Well, as you have correctly uh, pointed out, uh, Scott Peterson was convicted. Uh, He was sentenced to uh, death. Uh, And of course, the prosecution had proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Scott also uh, appealed. He lost that appeal. He then went to the California Supreme Court, who also uh, did not reverse his sentence, did not grant a new trial. They did set aside the death sentence that had been recommended by the jury and imposed by the judge. Uh, But that was not on the merits of the case. That was for a technical reason having to do with jury selection. Now comes the, poss- the involvement of uh, the Los Angeles Innocence Project. My feeling about it is he has every right to exhaust uh, any uh, legal avenue open to him uh, and that he should have the right to DNA testing of those objects and any other appropriate uh, uh, you know, evidence that could be presented to prove actual innocence. He has a big mountain to climb. He is fortunate that he is still alive today, uh, while unfortunately his victims, uh, his pregnant wife Lacey and his unborn child, uh, are no longer uh, alive. Yeah. And, but do, I, what, all do I you, can say is, is that's it make a heap of difference? I'm a civil rights lawyer yeah, as well as a victim's rights lawyer, so let them have the testing and we'll see what the results so, are. And I'm so curious about how this is all going to play out, but I do know that you had a chance to connect with, um, with your client, Amber Fry, today. Did she have any reaction to this? Yeah, I've connected both with Amber and with Anne today, and neither of them wished to do an interview at this time, uh, and neither of them uh, want to express an opinion at this time. You know, this is really shocking, and um, so they really have to think about it. Uh, And by the way, Ann Bird uh, was also my client during the trial, although we kept that a secret, except from the prosecution, and they were going to have her testify in the rebuttal. But then after the defense put on their case, they decided it wasn't necessary to have a rebuttal. So she never ended up testifying. But, um, you know, all I can say is they were both very brave. The, you know, Lacey recorded all of those calls. You played one of them uh, with Scott. And uh, that was at the Amber, request yeah. of the police. And she risked her life to be able to secretly do that because she had no police protection. She had no security uh, she was living alone while she recorded many calls, many of which were played uh, as evidence during the trial. And it turned out that, you know, we were concerned about her safety. Uh, and, but when Scott Peterson was ultimately arrested, as he was on his way to Mexico, uh, when the police finally found him and examined his van, he, his van, he did have a map to uh, yeah. Amber's home. Uh, or rather her well, workplace. This, this, had ropes this, this is the mountain. Th- these are 
the things you're saying, th this is the mountain that, that Scott Peterson has to climb. So it will be fascinating to see what the Innocence Project is able to sort of do with exactly. what they have. Uh, Gloria, that means that I'm going to be calling you again. So I appreciate you doing uh, the second Any interview of the week. Any time for Ashley. She's the one person uh, that I don't know how to say no to. So anyway. Oh, I love <laughs> okay. you so much. Thank you. All I right, appreciate thank you. that. Okay, Gloria right. Allred joining us live Bye -bye. again tonight. So next... I do have this for you, uh, a huge day in another huge murder case from a few years back. It's the man accused of killing two teenage girls in Delphi, Indiana. He won the right from the state's highest court, no less, to be defended by the lawyers that he wants. I know that sounds weird, but it's really great news for Richard Allen. So why was today such a massive loss for him? That story's next. a case to reach a state's highest court before there's even a trial. But the Delphi murders have taken some pretty odd bounces for a couple years now. Uh, the man accused is Richard Allen. He is a Delphi, Indiana pharmacy tech. And police say he killed Abigail Williams and Liberty German, two young teenage girls who were hiking near a railroad bridge back in 2017. Police say Richard Allen's voice was actually captured on one of the victim's cell phones. But Richard Allen wasn't arrested until five years later. That was 2022, and his trial is still months away at a minimum. But today, at least, the Indiana Supreme Court agreed to do something for him. They agreed to give him his lawyers back. You heard right. They agreed to give him his lawyers back. And let me explain this. The trial judge had tossed Allen's lawyers off the case after some graphic photos of the crime scene were leaked by a former colleague of those lawyers. Regardless, Richard Allen wanted those lawyers. He wanted them back. And furthermore, he was actually hoping that the high court would, would toss the judge off the case instead, but that did not happen. He did get his lawyers back, though. So it was a good day for Alan. Until all of a sudden, it was a very bad day for Alan. Suddenly, news broke late this afternoon that the state had amended the charges against Richard Allen. And now, instead of facing two charges of murder, he is facing four. The prosecutors decided to tack on two brand new counts of kidnapping and felony murder. And all of this brings us back to a very basic question. Is Richard Allen really the guy? Did he really kill Abby and Libby? Because apart from that image and the voice on the cell phone, the prosecutors have some ballistic evidence that a lot of people consider kind of shaky. Allen's newly reinstated defense team has accused detectives of suppressing evidence of a ritualistic killing, they say, by a white nationalist cult. Now, that might sound wild and crazy, and the prosecutors do say they've got some phone calls from the prison where Richard Allen talks to his family and admits to the killing, but his lawyers say he's losing it. Literally, he's losing his weight, he's losing his mind, and he might have said some crazy things on the phone, but... Look, earlier today, I had a chance to speak with Bob Mata. Bob is a criminal defense attorney, and he's the host of the true crime podcast, Defense Diaries. And he was at 
Alan's hearing today. Bob, what do you make of these proceedings today? An actual Supreme Court appearance in a state before a, a trial even gets underway? It's unusual, uh, especially in the middle of a trial and really getting to that level of the Supreme Court, you know, because this is what they call an original action, a writ of mandamus. Typically, the step is to go either on what they call an interlocutory appeal, which is an appeal that happens while the trial is going on, or they appeal after they're convicted. So for to go to this extent, and it was one of the major things that was argued today, especially by Judge Gull's attorneys with respect to they skipped a step, it shouldn't be here. So yeah, it was very unusual. If you're a fan of true crime and you scour the internet for everything you can on the Delphi case, you'll see a lot of skeptics. Like you will see a lot of people who say, I think they got the wrong guy. Um, but, you know, the Internet's one thing. So what, what is your read on this case? Well, when the probable cause affidavit dropped, I was one of those out there with a pretty loud voice in terms of the podcast that felt it was a very weak probable cause affidavit because it basically amounted to mere presence and then, you know, a basically uh, a shell casing that had not discharged through the weapon. And that was basically it, aside from four witnesses who all gave a different description. And that goes to just exactly what the issue is with eyewitnesses. They're just not reliable. So I just felt that it was a weak PCA that didn't mean that the state wasn't going to be able to produce more evidence because, as we know, the police investigation, law enforcement investigation continues long after the arrest takes place. So I think that they assumed that they'd get more. Whether or not they did, I don't know. But when you look at the strength of, say, Koberger's PCA in comparison to the Delphi, I was of the mindset they might have gotten the wrong guy here. And for justice for the girls, we need the right guy. Yeah, I mean, this is this is such a, um, a, a tug on the heartstrings uh, when you think about these families, you know, wanting justice and, and not wanting injustice either. Right. But when you when it comes to, to Richard Allen, it took five years to, to arrest him. He's been incarcerated for, for two years, all sorts of, you know, transformations in his body and his mental health and, and all the rest. And it feels like, and again, I don't know what the case has or what the, what the state has in terms of a case, but it feels like the, the strongest evidence they might have are these, these phone confessions when he's talking to his family. But if you've got mental health issues and you're repeating with cadence what the prosecutors might have on you, it could sound like a confession. I always go back to my cousin Vinny, you know, um, <laughs> and I wonder if that's the wrong thing to think at this point, that maybe this is just not strong what they've got on the phone records yeah and I, the only way that we'll know is when we hear it and when it gets vetted you know because of everything you said essentially we've got him in in custody uh but he's he's also in segregation 23 hours a day he simply is not going to be of the same mindset that a normal person that's out and about every day will be in because of the isolation uh, on top of that look I, i've been in prisons for 20 years of my legal career defending people, and they are not happy places. And, and when you have a pretrial detainee like Richard Allen, which means he has not been convicted in a place where there's only convicted people, there is no presumption of innocence from either the inmates or the guards. So people need to understand if they don't think that guards try to push 
pretrial date, uh, detainees into confessing to crimes. It happens all the time, all the time. So we frankly, we just have to hear it. We have to hear context. We have to hear what he sounds like. And, and we'll find out where it is from there. And, and the defense is going to be up to the challenge. They know it's an issue and they're going to address it the best they can. It is, of course, um, part of why this is so fascinating. A, we want to know what happened, and then B, we want to know what they really have. And sometimes we just have to be patient. Bob Mata, thank you. So appreciate your wisdom on this. Always. Bob Mata joining us. And still to come, there is an old saying that good friends will help you move, but great friends will help you move a body. What would you do if your roommate showed up covered in blood and asked you to help him dig a big old hole? Especially if he had a hand in his pocket that wasn't his. Whoa, that's gross. This mystery's next. So it is really not strange to shuffle around with your hands in your pockets. That's what pockets are made for. They're made for keys and gum and loose change and hands, especially in this really cold weather. It is, however, very, very weird to have other people's hands in your pockets, especially if they are severed hands. I am getting a little ahead of myself. Let me bring you up to speed on a super bizarre tale that begins last Tuesday in Pueblo, Colorado. Early in the morning, about 5 o'clock in the morning, a guy named Solomon Martinez shows up at a car wash. Remember that name, Solomon Martinez, because he's kind of the key to this whole thing. Uh, Solomon's roommate is already at the car wash, tinkering with his car, using the light from the car wash to to work on the car. And the roommate kind of sees Martinez has arrived with blood on his hands. And Martinez asks the roommate if he can borrow the power washer to clean up his hands at the car wash. And, And then Martinez asks this. Looks like he had just been in a fight. His hands had blood on them, and he was covered in dirt. He looks at me and he says, you want to absolve $1,000 off your debt? I need a 10-foot hole. Ugh, 10-foot hole. What would that be for? It's all very strange. And apart from Martinez having bloody hands, the roommate notices something else about Martinez. He notices there's something weird in his trunk. Because when Martinez, the suspect, goes to get some tools out of his trunk, the roommate sees he's struggling with something, quote, big that was in the way. So that would be another red flag. So if you're keeping score, bloody hands, something real big in the back of the trunk. Uh, The roommate at this point says he doesn't want to be an accomplice to any kind of murder or anything, but he doesn't call the police either. Instead, he he decides to just pass this crazy Martinez business off to uh, a friend of theirs. And that friend says that Martinez, bloody hands guys, uh, he repeated all that weird stuff about digging a 10-foot hole. For whatever reason, he decides to get in the car with Martinez and then drive that car that's got something big in the trunk to a creek bed where Martinez allegedly dragged what appeared to be a woman's headless body down to the water. Uh, The friend has some details here, too. He says the the head wasn't attached to the body, but it was next to the body. And that friend says then Martinez pulled a gun on him and demanded that he dig that grave, that 10-foot hole that everybody's been talking about. And then he says Martinez took off. 
He says he didn't do any of the digging. Instead, he decided to cover his you-know-what and record a video of the body, uh, you know. And, and then he covered the body with a blanket and called the police the next day, he says. Police went out, and sure, when you know it, there was a body. And they arrested Martinez, you know, the guy with the bloody hands who told his buddy to dig a hole and bury a woman's dismembered body. And what do you suppose was in the pocket of Martinez when the police arrested him? A severed hand. It was in a plastic bag up here in the left breast pocket, a woman's severed hand, at which point they started asking a lot of tough questions, as one would. And Martinez gave them a lot of really, like, weird answers. Like, weird. So let's start with question one. Uh, Do you know the victim? And Martinez says he knows the victim, says she was a prostitute. He'd hired her a couple of days earlier, and he swore that he dropped her off safely at home. Okay, so then, you know, I, I, I skipped ahead. Question one was, why do you have a severed hand in your pocket? <laughs> that would be my first question, too. He says he carried it around for two days, but it doesn't mean he killed or dismembered anybody. Yes, it does. Question two was about the prostitute. Question three, if you didn't kill her, why is there blood in your car? And that's when Martinez pointed to a very convenient um, reason. Um, the roommate, actually the friend of the roommate, the guy who drove to the creek bed with him, saw the body, called the police, put the blanket over, you know. Martinez says he lent that guy his car, and wouldn't you know it, his phone was in the car in case there's any triangulation going on. Question four, if somebody else is the killer, why were you washing dirt and blood off your hands at the car wash? It's a great question. But Martinez has an answer. He says, I'm a germaphobe. Is that a crime? All right, let's go on to question five. What are those scratches on your arms? And Martinez says that his chihuahua scratched him. And then he changes it. He says, no, he actually scratched himself while he was picking up the chihuahua's poop. This went on for three hours, this back-and-forth garbage. And police say Martinez's legs were shaking and his voice was high-pitched and he was clearly very nervous through all of this. So that is why he is now being held on suspicion of murder and bail has been set at a million dollars. He's supposed to be in court next week, and so you can bet we are going to follow this one because severed hand in your pocket, not yours. I can't wait. Still to come, all sides agree that it is a nightmare, an unthinkable tragedy, but is it murder? One minute, a mother is crossing a neighborhood street with her three young sons. The next, two SUVs come barreling into the crosswalk and kill two of those boys. And now a Los Angeles socialite is on trial. But her lawyers say the other driver is to blame. Her ex-lover, who happens to be very famous. Details all next. <laughs> Nancy Iskander was out with her husband and their four kids, a daughter, and three young sons aged 5, 8, and 11. And at the same time, at a restaurant down the road, Rebecca Grossman, who was the wife of a prominent plastic surgeon, she was allegedly tossing back some cocktails with her secret boyfriend, a former Major League pitcher named Scott Erickson. The way the story is told, the couple each got into their respective SUVs, a white Mercedes SUV and a black Mercedes SUV. And according to police, they started racing each other at speeds topping 80 miles an hour. 
again, residential neighborhood. Allegedly, they sped and even zigzagged towards West Lake Village, which was the exact location where the Iskander family was out walking and rollerblading and scooting. Nancy Iskander had only a split second to grab the nearest kid, and it was a five-year-old boy, and dive out of the way of those racing SUVs. But one of those two vehicles hit both of the other two boys, eight-year-old Jacob and 11-year-old Mark. And Mark was thrown more than 250 feet. So it's understandable why he died at the scene. Jacob, on the other hand, survived, but he was dead within hours at the hospital. Tonight, Rebecca Grossman is facing two counts of murder, two counts of vehicular manslaughter with gross negligence, and one count of hit and run resulting in death. Her trial is just getting underway, and her lawyers are prepping a brand new line of defense, and that is the boyfriend did it. News Nation's correspondent Nancy Liu is covering this case. She's live in Los Angeles tonight. So, Nancy... This is, ins- this is amazing. What is her story about the boyfriend? Like, how is she trying to prove that it was the boyfriend's car and not hers that is the killer car? Well, that's what the defense will try to prove at trial. It's jury selection that's just getting underway this week. It will continue next week. But she has pleaded not guilty to all of these charges. And it's clear that the defense will try to raise doubt about which SUV hit those boys. She was driving a white Mercedes SUV, Scott Erickson driving a black SUV. And as you mentioned, they were driving fast, leaving uh, a restaurant where they had had cocktails uh, at a preliminary hearing. Uh, We heard testimony that that car was going at least 70 miles an hour when it hit the boys. But it will be up to the defense to prove that it was not Rebecca Grossman's SUV to hit the boys, but the other SUV, and they have questioned why Erickson's SUV was never photographed or tested after the incident. Okay, good point. Great point. But we were, as you were just doing this report live, we were showing pictures of of Rebecca Grossman's white Mercedes SUV. Can I ask the control room to pop that picture back up on the screen? Because I don't know a lot about the, you know, intricacies of crash investigations. I just know what I'm looking at, Nancy. Her hood of her car is crumpled Mm -hmm. as though two boys smashed it in. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. How on earth are they going to get past this? Yes, it'll be interesting to hear how the defense will explain this. There is clear damage to the front of her SUV when she was stopped, and this was like a third of the mile after the crosswalk. She had told the officer that she doesn't know why her airbags deployed, uh, and she just didn't know why what, and couldn't explain what happened. She didn't know. Well... The good people of the county that will be chosen as jurors, um, my assumption is that they're not going to be total bozos. They're going to be able to see with their own eyes uh, that damage. And if she doesn't have a good reason, story, and witness to show that it happened somewhere else at another time, she's in a big lot of trouble. Hey, Nancy Lou, thank you for staying up late to do this. Really appreciate it. Of course. Welcome. 
Nancy Lou is going to keep covering that case, and so will we. Still to come, winter, often public enemy number one, but tonight, no, the opposite. The polar vortex is making life a lot better for at least three communities, as in several criminal suspects are now on ice. A jailbreak, a burglary, and a car theft, all solved in minutes. And nobody even had to yell, freeze. There's a riddle in here. We're going to solve it next. We do not usually do weather reports on this true crime show, but I am making an exception tonight because of what's going on in Memphis, specifically how winter is helping the police solve crimes. And I have a case in point of a jailbreak on Sunday. A 20-year-old fella, a rape suspect, and he's being transferred to jail when he decides to jump out of a corrections officer's car and make a run for it. He does pretty good. He actually got away, but not for long, because after 45 minutes of trying to battle heavy winter snow, ice, and frigid temperatures in his shackles, he decided that old man winter had a beat. Couldn't handle it anymore. Couldn't handle the cold. So he flagged a car down and turned himself in. And then there's another one. There's these two guys who busted through the front window of a makeup store and made off with $4,000 worth of beauty products, allegedly. Um, But in their brilliant attempt to escape, they forgot the cardinal rule of escape. If you run through the snow, y'all's footprints are going to be behind you, duh. And the investigators just followed those footprints right up to the spot where the guys were still standing in the parking lot with all the loot. Arrested. And then snowy footprints also helped police find a stolen vehicle. Early on Monday morning, officers saw two guys trying to break into an air machine at a gas station. I'm thinking because, you know, sometimes you have to pay for the amount of air you get in your tires, so they're trying to break in and get the air for free. Well, the cops show up and they took off and, yep, They left all those perfect footprints in the snow behind them for the police to... And one of the guys did get away, but the other one, kind of Santa in the spring, um, he was found hiding in a stolen Honda. So that's three crimes solved in short order. Thank you, Jack Frost. Think about that the next time the temperature drops. Uh, That is it for us tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Cuomo starts now. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Huge case. Convicted killer Scott Peterson. Remember him? Charged with first and second degree murder and the death of his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son back in 2004. Now he may get a new trial. Lacey was pregnant.